0: Hello and welcome to Jetavana Rama Buddhist Mastery. And today we meet with the 13th episode of this series of Dhamma talks. The superstitious among you may know of number 13 as being quite an ominous occurrence or number. And it is something that people fear. But I wouldn't worry because today we're going to change all that. So, as you know, usually people try and avoid number 13. You don't have a number 13 in hotels. And uh, yeah, it's generally considered to bring. Bad luck, isn't it? So, whether you are the superstitious type or not, I can promise you this. This episode, the 13th episode of this series of Dhamma talks, will bring you something far from bad luck. In fact, today I intend to share with you something that will bring you good fortune. Something that will hopefully turn a new page in your life. Something that will hopefully take you a long stride forwards on your journey to achieving true happiness. Now I know that's a tall order, but we can always be hopeful, even when it's number 13. So, before we continue, let us pay homage to the supremely enlightened, the magnificent, the ultimate Lord Buddha. Namo tasse bhagavato arhato samma sambuddhasse. Namo tasse bhagavato arhato samma sambuddhas. Namo Tathagatotu Arhatu Samma So, what could it be that could bring you so much good luck and good fortune? What might I be able to say that could change your life forever? That could change your outlook on life. On happiness forever. I don't expect that this will be new territory for all of you. I'm sure there will be some of you, perhaps even a majority of you, that will be familiar with what I have to share with you today. But at the same time, I also am certain. That there will be some among you for whom the principles that I share with you today may be novel concepts. And any good student will always be receptive to new ideas, and also they will be quite pleased about revising all topics or subject matter that they may already be familiar with because it gives them another opportunity to practice the truth that they may have already realized. So without any further ado, let's cut to the chase. Something that is quite synonymous with Buddhist philosophy is the principle of cause and effect. Now, this may sound like taking a detour from where we last stopped our conversation. Perhaps maybe previous week and the week before that, you'll remember last week we discussed about our inevitable end and the theme of our talks up until recently has been the subject of vexation, hasn't it? How the mind suffers from this condition of vexation. And we have been discussing pleasure as a function that has vexation rooted in it. So I'm not really going off track when I today talk to you about the principle of cause and effect, but it is something that I think will be prudent to discuss at this point, to really get it out there and start to think about at this point, because very soon we will begin to realize the connection between the principle of cause and effect and vexation, pleasure, and all of that good stuff that we have been discussing up until now. Because the truth is, It is actually fantastic news, as you will soon realize, that there is such a thing as cause and effect, which is the fundamental principle that determines the existence of everything that we see around us. Their arising, their existence, as well as their passing away. Now. We know that this is true. Things arise, they exist for a period of time, and then they pass away. All things come to an end. Meaning, they have a beginning. They have a period of time during which they exist, they prevail, and then, at a given point, they pass away. Now, this is characteristic of all conditioned things. You've met this idea of conditioned things or conditioned entities previously, if you recall from some of our first talks in this series. And by conditioned, what we meant was things that manifest, things that we are able to experience, see, or just exist because there are other factors that have brought them to life. So that is simply what we mean by conditioned. I'll take a simple example, a fire for instance. A fire comes into being, remains alive and then passes away. By alive of course I don't mean a living breathing organism, I just mean A fire that is producing heat, you know, like at the fireplace, or maybe a barbecue, or a forest fire, whatever. It has a beginning. There's a period of time in which it is alive, and then it passes away. So a fire is a conditioned entity. Why do we say that? Well, it's a conditioned entity because there are conditions which must be true for a fire to come into existence. There are conditions which must be true for a fire to exist, to remain alive. And there are conditions which must be true for a fire to pass away. Really, the very conditions that brought it to being must spread apart or disperse, exist no longer, and as a result of that, that fire which came into being because of very specific conditions will pass away. So that's quite a simple idea. But it is true, as simple as it may be, it is true for all conditioned things. Take anything you can think of, right from the stars to the planets, to the galaxies, and pretty much anything in this universe, to even the simple things, such as the colour of your hair, tiny pebbles, raindrops, whatever the case might be. Everything you see around you has a beginning, there's a duration, it will prevail, it will be alive. You understand in what context I use and in what meaning I refer to them as being alive. It is simply the time during which it remains visible to us and not necessarily to the naked eye, but simply it's a time during which it prevails and then after a while it passes away. So all things we see around us are conditioned because, once again, there are conditions that keep it so. Even life itself. There was a time when you were not here on this earth, wasn't there. So. You came into being. So there was a time when you, you were born. Then you live for a period of time. And then, as we discussed last week, the inevitable end. So life itself is conditioned. Can you think of anything that is not conditioned? What do you think? Is there anything that you can think of that is not conditioned? Can you think of something that is not conditioned? I am giving you a moment to rummage through your idea bank or your memory bank and see if you can think of something, conjure up something that you think is not conditioned. Now, the intelligent among you, I know, will perhaps by this point proposed, well, isn't Nirvana or Nibbana and uh, Bante, have you not mentioned unconditional happiness? Surely that is not conditioned. Ah, so this is the exception. Well done you. So apart from that exception, I ask you to think of something that is unconditioned. Is there anything you can think of that is unconditioned? The simple answer is no, isn't it? No matter what you think of, everything is conditioned. So going back to the simple example of a fire, which we shall use because it's something that we all are familiar with. And it's a pretty good example and something that we can use quite simply to explain a lot of the principles which govern pretty much every other conditioned entity. See, take a fire. There are conditions which bring a fire into being. And this is simply why we, there's not a fire everywhere. So, for instance, you know, why isn't there a fire in front of me right now? Think about it. Think about it in terms of The fire being a conditioned entity. Why isn't there a fire in front of me right now, right here in front of me on this table? Why isn't there a fire? Well, there isn't a fire here because the conditions that are required to bring a fire into being do not exist. Not here anyway. Well, you might say, yes, but there are flammable objects in front of me, like these flowers, for instance. There's wood, isn't that flammable? Well, yes, but something flammable is only one of the conditions, isn't it, that are required to bring a fire into being. Now, any student of science will know that there are three essential components that must come together for a fire to arise. And what are they? Of course, a flammable object. There is oxygen, which is the precious gas that we need to bring a fire into being, the life giving gas that we all know, and of course, there is temperature. So, these three factors flammable object or substance, oxygen, and the required temperature. When these three conditions Come together. You have a fire. So why isn't there a fire in front of me right now at this very moment? The reason is the three conditions that must come together for that for that fire to exist have not come into being. Very simple, isn't it? Now, as you. Rightly, you would have thought there is flammable, there's a flammable object and there is oxygen, but it does not have the required temperature. This is an air conditioned room. Even if it were at room temperature, it's not warm enough for this flammable object to be alight. So there aren't enough factors. In fact, simply one factor is missing here, isn't there? So there's the flammable object, there is plenty of oxygen here, fortunately and gladly, but there isn't the right temperature for a fire to come into being. So you see, a conditioned entity can only exist and also can only come into being when all the necessary conditions come together. I'll repeat that. A conditioned entity can only come into being, can only arise and can only exist for as long as it exists provided all the necessary conditions. You can't simply have just one or two when there are more conditions necessary. You need to have all conditions come true For that entity to come into being. So, why isn't there a fire in front of me right now? Because there are three conditions that are essential for a fire to come into being, and there are only two of them present at this moment in time. There's a flammable object, there's oxygen, but there isn't the right temperature. What if there was a flammable object? There was the right temperature, but not oxygen. Would you have a fire then? Again, the answer is no. What if there was oxygen and the right temperature but no flammable object? Again, you wouldn't have a fire. So you see, if there are a multitude of conditions which have to come together for a particular conditioned entity to come into being and to remain in existence, it's only Only when all of these conditions come into being will that particular entity manifest itself. Now, this might sound like a really simple explanation of something that we are all so familiar with. And you might wonder, Bhante, why are you even going on about this? Isn't this like preliminary science? We learned this at grade six. Why are you going on about this? We are adults, we know a thing or two more than this. Surely. I agree. Absolutely, I am only using this as an example to show you something bigger, something larger, something magnificent. I am using the example of a fire to explain to you the concept of cause and effect. Only when the right causes are available And they come together in the right fashion, will you have the desired effect or the intended effect of those causes coming together in that fashion, in that order? Think about how we put out a fire. Sometimes we might use carbon dioxide gas that might come from a fire extinguisher, don't we? So what happens there? You see, for someone who doesn't analyze what's going on there through a, the, through a scientific lens might think, well, it was carbon dioxide that put out the fire. Well, actually, that's not true. It's not carbon dioxide that put out fi- the fire. What happened when you sprayed carbon dioxide into that environment is the concentration of oxygen drops. Below the level that is required for a fire to exist. You see, the presence or absence of carbon dioxide has nothing to do with a fire. Because what are the requirements for a fire to come into existence? Flammable object, oxygen, and temperature. You didn't hear me say carbon dioxide in any of these three elements, did you? So carbon dioxide has nothing to do with it. So how is it then that the introduction of carbon dioxide can put out a fire? It makes no sense. But what carbon dioxide does is it takes it reduces the concentration of oxygen. Because in a volume of gas if you remain the pressure a constant when you introduce an external quantity of gas then something that is already there must exit. And by virtue of that the introduction of carbon dioxide you could have done with anything else provided of course you are not using a flammable gas. Now we know that carbon dioxide is an inflammable gas and therefore the introduction of something inflammable really is of no more significance than simply to, in, to, to reduce the concentration of the flammable gas, which is oxygen. So that's what happens there. Now, and in some other situations, you might say throw water on a fire to put it out, wouldn't you? So there are water fire extinguishers. How does that work? Can water really put out a fire? Again, I want to emphasize the point here, folks, that I'm not trying to teach you science, but rather I'm inviting you to think about really what's going on in this situation, because this is really important. The way you look at this, the way you read this situation is, is, is very important to understand the principle of cause and effect. And no better example than a fire both literally and metaphorically, because at the end of the day, what we're trying to put out here is a fire, and that is a fire of vexation. So it's a wonderful example, if I might say so myself. Only I learned it from my teachers. So all due credit there. So let's get back to the example of the fire, right? Some people would put out a fire using water, provided of course that is the suitable extinguisher to be used in that situation. You'd never put out an electrical fire with water, for instance. So what does water do to a fire, to, a, to, a, to an alive fire or to a live fire? What does water do? Let's go back to the requirements. What are the conditions that are needed for a fire to come into being? You need a flammable object. You need oxygen. And you need the required temperature. And the absence of water? No. Water has nothing to do. The presence or absence of water has nothing to do with a fire. So how is it then that the addition or the introduction of water can put out a fire? What's the logic there? The logic is simply this. And you know this. I know you know this. I'm just asking you, I'm just inviting you to think about it from a different perspective. If, for instance, we've always thought that water put out a fire. Actually, water never put out a fire. But what did water do? Water has the potential to absorb heat. Now, when you have a temperature, for instance, this is where we use a damp cloth and maybe put it over our forehead. What happens then? Water has the ability to absorb heat, and in doing so, it converts itself from water to vapor. Again, really simple basic science. So, what happens here? When there's a fire and you throw water, it's not the water that put out the fire. But what did water do? What water did was it absorbed the heat. By absorbing the heat, part of it was converted to vapor but in doing so what happened was it reduced the temperature the ignition temperature it reduced the temperature and therefore took away from this environment one of the elements that was required that was essential for the fire to remain alive so that was the role of water if there was something else that could do that the same result would be achieved. So therefore you understand it doesn't have to be water. It could have been anything else. Of course it has to be something that is not flammable. That is why you can't throw a can of gasoline onto a fire and expect it to do the same as would water. But water is not flammable. So what happens is it absorbs the heat and by doing that, reduces the temperature of that environment and therefore the fire can no longer remain alive. This is yet again proof that the conditions which are required for a fire to come into being and to exist are the same three requirements, the same three elements. What were they? Flammable object, oxygen and temperature. So you see, a fire can only continue to be alive provided all of the conditions which brought it alive continue to remain. So if but one of those conditions were removed from that environment, then you no longer have a fire. There is nothing you could do to sustain a fire if you remove but one of those conditions. You don't have to touch all of them. You just need to remove one. But for a fire to come into being, you need to apply all three of them. To put it out, you just need to take out just one of them. So you don't have to throw water at a fire and also take out the oxygen. Because that is not necessary. As simple as this might sound, soon you realize the beauty of this principle. Why it is anyone's good fortune to be able to look at something, look at conditional objects, conditional entities through this lens and from this perspective so the the point I'm trying to convey to you folks is that for something to come into being and for that. Per- That thing, whatever that thing might be, anything conditional, any conditioned entity, for it to come into being and for it to remain, you need all of the conditions which brought it into being. All of them. Absolutely all of them. If there were 10 of them, you need all 10 of them to be supplied in the required quantities, in the required order, in the required fashion. But. The good news is, and I repeat the good news is for it to cease to exist. You don't need to take out all ten of them or all twenty of them or all hundred of them, if there were a hundred causes that were required to bring the desired effect. You only need to take out one, just one. If you took out just one, then your formula is, not con- is no longer complete. For those of you who may have some experience in IT will know this pretty well. As I can say for myself, having worked in information technology for a long period of time in my life as a solutions architect, I learned pretty soon in my early years of learning IT that. For things to work, there are s- numerous conditions that have to come true. Take something as simple as sending a print job. If you aren't familiar with IT, then I'm sure you'll forgive me. But I think most people will be familiar with the ex- experience of trying to print something. Haven't there been times when you click the print button and nothing comes out of the printer? And what do you do? You'd walk up to the printer and see if it's run out of paper. Might be one of the first things you do. Because the presence of paper is one of the conditions that are required for a print job. Having checked that, you might check if the printer is switched on. Having done that, you might check if there's enough ink or toner in the printer. Having checked that, you might check to make sure that there is connectivity between your printer and the computer from which you send your print job. Having done that, you might go back to your printer and see perhaps if the computer has the required drivers, the software necessary to process that print job and send it off to the printer. Perhaps the cable is damaged. Perhaps there's a problem with the software. Perhaps there's not enough memory. Perhaps the printer is faulty. Perhaps it's run out of ink. Perhaps there's not enough paper. And finally, after you've managed to meddle with all of those things, I do cross your fingers and say, right, for the hundredth time, let me see if it works now, press a button and the printer still doesn't print. (laughs) That's a very frustrating time, isn't it? Is there any point now in picking up the printer and throwing it out the window? As you might have seen in some funny videos, when people get terribly stressed out at the workplace, I try printing once, try it again, try it a third time. Next time, the printer's out. You see, When you begin to understand the world through the principle of cause and effect you will take out all that vexation. Why do people get frustrated? Why do people get annoyed when things don't work out the way they want to? Think about it. At the end of the day, you know, this is the Buddha's guide to happiness. I'm not here to talk to you about a fire and how to bring it one about and how to put it out. that you can learn from a good camping magazine. This is about the Buddha's guide to happiness. Why is it that people are devoid of happiness? Why do people suffer so much? Why do people get annoyed and frustrated and stressed out? It's because they don't understand the principle of cause and effect, that's why. You see, going back to the fire, The fire, if we consider that to be the effect, okay, if we consider the fire to be the effect, that effect will only manifest if all of the conditions turn true. And the effect will not manifest if only but one of those conditions turn out to be false. Now, once you understand this principle, and you have fully accepted this principle, and you have decided this is how I need to treat all things conditional, then there is no reason for you to be frustrated because frustration does not add anything to the problem. Because it's not like flammable object, oxygen, temperature and a tad bit of frustration sets a fire alight. Because frustration does not add anything. There's no point in being frustrated about something. You see, once you understand the causes that bring about an effect, and if you know those causes really well, then when you don't have the desired effect, the only thing you need to do is to check that you have the right causes and that they are available in the right quantities, in the right fashion, in the right order and so on. So the reason that the printer is not doing your print job is not because the printer hates you or because it's a Monday. Or because your boss hates you? Or because it's doomsday? No. The reason the printer's not delivering your print job is because there must be at least one cause that is just not in line to give you the desired effect. So kicking it until your foot gets swollen, or throwing it out the window, or cursing the manufacturers or handing in your resignation. None of these things is going to get the printer to work. So why do you call a printer technician? The technician comes and checks what? Does he wave his magic wand and all of a sudden the printer comes alive? No. This is not wizardry, this is logic. Quite simply to put it, a lesson that I taught myself and one that, in, that is a really good and valuable lesson for life. Things are only magic until you understand its logic. Once you get the logic, it's no longer magic. So you don't have no need for magic wands if you understand the logic behind something. So what does a technician do? The friendly PC guy or the IT guy, he walks into the office and he looks the printer, checks it, checks the toner. Checks the ink, checks the paper, checks the drivers, checks the cable, checks that it's switched on, and maybe he'll check a few more things that you and I may not be aware of. Because that's his trade, that's his skill, that's the stuff he knows, and he'll fix it. By fixing it, what he's done is not done some kind of Magic. He simply lined up all of the causes that were required then, that are required now, and that will forever be required for a print job to come out successfully. Yes, of course, you can thank him profusely and give him a hug and a kiss if you like, but all he's done is simply bring the right causes together. They were there just yesterday, but something happened. And they're just not there today. All he did was came around and fixed it. Simply put it back to the way it was before. Maybe there was a part that was broken. And he replaced it. It's when people don't understand the principle of cause and effect. They become frustrated. Annoyed. Angry. And at the same time fall in love with the printer guy. You saved my life. People say, "I don't know how you did it. That was amazing. Are you a magician?" No, all he did—I mean, all due credit—he's good in his skills, and he's a—you know—for all he's done, we give him uh, full credit for that. But what he's done really is simply bring those conditions back together. This is the principle of cause and effect. Now. This principle I invite you to apply to as many conditional entities that you can think of. Because the more you do it and the more you start to think about conditional entities from this perspective, the better you will understand why I have shared this with you today. Think about your body, for instance. How come you're alive just right now? How come you're not dead? Is it magic? Because if it were magic, then what do the doctors have to do when some part of your body stops working? Are they magicians in white coats? No, they're doctors. They have specialized in the mechanics of the human body. They understand how the human body functions. So therefore, when something doesn't work right, as expected, they'll find out what was the cause, what's the condition that is not right, that is not in the right quantity, that is not in the right order and then they will reset it, they will replace it, they will repair it. So, they're body technicians just like the printer guy. Of course you can give your doctor a hug and an embrace and and give him a kiss and a bunch of flowers for saving your life but really all he did was reset those conditions the very conditions that you had with you a while ago somewhere down the line something went wrong the difference between You and the doctor is you don't know what went wrong because that is not your forte. You don't know the conditions that keep you alive. You don't know the conditions that get your food to digest at the right time in the right manner. You maybe don't know the conditions that gets your heart to pump blood around your body. Perhaps you don't know the conditions that circulate oxygen. Throughout your body and absorb it through your lungs, into your blood, and so on. You know, all parts of the body that have to function together to keep you alive. So, the fact that you are alive is that magic or is it logic? If it's magic, then doctors have nothing to do. There's nothing they could do to fix you up when you're broken. So, it can't be magic because they are not wizards. Rather, they are people of logic. They are scientists. They understand the conditions that, are, that have to come together, that have to be true, for this entity that is the body and thus life to come into being and to remain in existence. So when there is nothing that the doctors can do, To reset those conditions, should one one or more of them get out of line, then there is nothing that they can do to stop life from passing away. Again, you see, death is no magic, it's simply logic. Well, if life is logic, then death is logic. Everything is logic. Everything is logical. Because no matter where you look, no matter what you study, far or close, you will now begin to realize that everything in this world are conditioned entities which demonstrate the principle of cause and effect. When the right causes come into being, the effect will manifest. When those causes cease to exist, the effect shall cease to exist. When the right conditions come together, there is nothing that you or I or anyone for that matter can do to stop the effect from manifesting itself. And when the conditions have ceased to exist, there is nothing. No human or divine being can do to stop the effect from manifesting itself. So what that tells us then is really there is no part for you or I or any other person or any other sentient being, human or divine, to really do in this situation. None of us have a role here to play, except, of course, to bring those conditions together that will deliver to us the desired effect. But if we don't involve the causes, then there is nothing you and I can do. So you and I, or anyone for that matter, are not special Because you and I have no role here, a fire does not come into being because of you, I or anyone else for that matter. No human or divine intervention can bring a fire into being if the required causes are not there. And no human or divine intervention can seize a fire if the causes that brought that fire into being are not taken away you and I, the the most we can do is bring those causes together. And so if those causes can be brought together, it matters not whether you did it, I did it, or anyone else did it. Because it's not you, I, or anyone else that's important in this formula. It is the causes. And they're coming together that brings an effect into existence. So really, you and I, we're not special. What brings any effect into being are the causes. Whether that is fire, whether that is life, whether that is your new job or getting a new job. Think about it. How did you get yourself a new job? Just because it was you, could you just walk into a room and say, Hey, I'm me. Give me a job. No one's gonna give you a job like that. So you see, if you were if you walked into an interview, and one of the questions that they might ask you at an interview is, why should we give you the job? Have you ever had that question asked of you? You must have. Anyone who's been at a good job interview would have had that question asked of them. Why do you deserve this job, right? Or why should we give you this job? To which, if your answer is, Well, it's because it's me duh, you won't be in that interview room for very long after that, because what they're asking is, what are the causes that you can bring to the table for which we can work together and bring into existence the effect that is handing over the job to you? What are your qualifications? What is your experience? What do you know well enough for us to give you this job? So it's not just what you know, it's also what experience you have and also how much you demand as a salary, for instance. What remuneration package do you expect? Perhaps your age might have something to do. Maybe whether you're male or female, might have something to do. Again, what I want you to see here, folks, is for an effect to come into being, the causes that bring that effect into life must come into being and must be present. How do you pass an exam? By studying, working hard, doing your homework, working through the sums. Working on practice papers. Going through your textbook, reading it top to bottom and bottom to top. Doing the exercises. Reading through the passages. Going, taking extra tuition if you need it. See, what are you doing there? You're preparing all the conditions to achieve the desired outcome. You're not going to pass an exam just because it's you. So really, you never passed an exam, did you? I want you to understand this in the same meaning with which I am trying to convey this to you. You never passed an exam. It wasn't you who passed the exam, was it? It wasn't you what passed the exam, was it? The right conditions coming into being resulted in a pass. And if those conditions were To be brought together by whoever, did it matter that it was you? If I had done the same, would I not have passed the same exam with the same result? You know the answer to this. So it matters not who does the exam, as so much as what was done for the exam. Time and time again, what I hope you are beginning to realize here, is the Whos have no part to play here. The Whos are irrelevant. You and I are simply irrelevant. Because it is not you or I or any other being that brings this world into existence, keeps it this way. It is not you, I, or anyone else that brings this world to an end. I propose to you that it is causes that brought this world into existence. It is causes that keep this world in the state that it is in at this moment in time. And once those causes cease to exist, this world shall perish. You, I, or any other Human or divine intervention, I fail to see. And through your understanding of this logic, I hope you will agree with me, has nothing to do with any of these things. Because it is causes which give rise to results. It is causes which manifest effects. The cessation of those causes will result in the cessation of that effect, of that particular effect. So, if we figure out what the causes are for a particular effect, then we have control. So, what I want you to understand here is not that we are completely useless, right? There's no point in you and I doing anything about this. That's not the point here. You and I can be in control if and only if we understand the causes which give rise to a particular effect. Without our understanding, without our knowledge of the principle of cause and effect, you and I are helpless. There is nothing that you and I can do. We are useless. Your intervention, my intervention are only as useful as our understanding of the causes to bring about the desired effect. Because once we understand those causes, we can line them up so that the desired effect can be achieved. And if there was a particular effect that we were not in favor of, that we'd rather not, then that's good news, isn't it? all we need to do is take out just one of those causes. Not two, not three. We don't need to worry about that. Just take out one of the many-fold causes. It matters not how many there are. We don't even need to investigate how many causes bring about a particular effect. If you can just identify one cause that brings about a particular effect, All we need to do is to take out that one cause and then no longer will that effect manifest. So to do the home run, let's come back to why I'm sharing this with you today. Before I conclude today's talk, we've been speaking about vexation. We've been talking about suffering. We've been talking about pleasure. By now, you'll understand that pleasure is relief from vexation. So, if there were no vexation, there would not be any pleasure. But when we understand that pleasure is simply relief from vexation, no longer we are in favor of pleasure, certainly not as much as we deemed it to be. Pleasure is overrated. I think you will begin to understand that now, because if it's simply the relief from vexation, you need to be vexed first before you can be relieved. So it's simply that relief from vexation that brings you pleasure. In which case, what if, and just what if, we could somehow find a way to cease the vexation Rather than find a way to relieve ourselves of vexation, what if we could find a way, or what if we could find the method that this vexation comes into being? Because if everything around us is conditioned, why not vexation itself? All entities are conditioned. What about vexation? Is that not conditioned? Now, this is food for thought. If vexation as well is conditioned, what that tells us then is, there must be causes that give rise to that vexation. And if there are causes that give rise to that vexation, and if we are able to identify those causes, voila, bingo, we found the answer to a problem, or to the problem. If we can somehow find out the causes that bring rise to this effect that is vexation, then all we'd need to do is take out all of those causes. No, no, no. You don't need to do that. All you'd need to do is take out just one of those causes and then vexation will no longer come into being. And if vexation no longer comes into being, then we needn't worry about relieving ourselves from that vexation. Because there'd be no vexation to relieve it from. I'm going to leave you with that, because I think there's ample food for thought there. Please go through some of the examples we've talked about today. Listen to this if you can find the time a couple of times, it would be most helpful. And I promise we will continue this conversation when we meet next week. Before we conclude, let us take a moment then to transfer the merits that we have all acquired and to be grateful to all those who've done their very best to help us discuss this Dhamma, to share this with among ourselves and to ultimately find the true path to happiness. Let us take a moment then. To chant for the merits that we have all acquired by making offerings to the infinite virtues of the Noble Triple Gem, chanting period, listening to the Dhamma and engaging in various deeds today, first and foremost let us remind ourselves how incredibly fortunate we are to be in receipt of the Lord Buddha's teaching, and with immense gratitude let us transfer these merits to the Bhikkhus and Bhikkhunis, Upasikas and Upasikas, who since time immemorial have protected and preserved the sublime teachings of the Buddha and passed it down through the generations of the Noble lineage. In the form of the Tripitaka, which is thankfully available to us today to study, understand and comprehend the Dhamma. Let us also transfer the merits we have acquired to all members of the Sangha present throughout the world, including the chief prelates of all of the chapters, who have dedicated their lives to the noble path and have committed themselves towards the betterment of all sentient beings. Let us not forget that among them are the monks and nuns resident in your local temples and nunneries, who have always been by your side through thick and thin, come rain or shine, let us also transfer these merits to our teachers and all other monks resident at this monastery, as well as all the Anagarikas and Anagarikas attached to the monastery. Let us also take a moment to transfer these merits and express our gratitude to those who make great efforts to disseminate the teachings of the Buddha, be that by transliterating these sermons, sharing them out with others or inviting others to join them. And may, through the power of these merits, if any of them have been born in the warful plain, redeem themselves and be born in the blissful plain, may, through the power of these merits, they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, Fulfill the Noble Eightfold Path, and attain the Supreme Bliss of Nibbana, Sadhu, Sadhu, Sadhu. There is also trans of merits we have acquired to our devotees and friends of the Monastery, who for the sake of merits continue to sustain the Mahasangha. This includes everyone from those of you who have contributed to the construction of the Monastery, and to those of you who continue to sustain the Mahasangha with shelter, arms, robes and medicines, as well as those of you who have passed on their know-how and continue to extend their well-wishes. May, through the power of these merits, they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfil the meritorious deeds, fulfil the Noble Eightfold Path, and attain the supreme bliss of Nibba. Sadhu, so, Sadhu, so, Sadhu, so. Let us also take a moment to transfer merits to our mothers and fathers, husbands and wives, brothers and sisters, sons and daughters, grandparents, uncles, aunts, cousins, nephews, nieces, our elders, friends and acquaintances, employers and employees, and to all those who have helped us, supported us, assisted us in any way, shape or form, By the power of these merits, may they be healed of any physical or mental ailments and overcome any obstacles to their spiritual progress. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, Sadhu, Sadhu. Let us also take a moment to transfer merits to the Devas, Brahma, spirits, and demons, primarily the sakadeva, Deva, as well as all the numerous gods and deities who are committed to protect and fulfill the Sambhita Shasane. Let us also transfer merits to our guardian deities who keep a watchful eye over us and keep us out of harm's way. And may to the power of these merits they prosper in divine power and wisdom. May they abstain from the meritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and attain the supreme bliss of nibbana. Sada, Sada. Let us also take a moment to transfer merits to our ancestors who have predeceased us, to all those who have been our friends and families and acquaintances in this infinitely long journey in Sansara, and those who have helped us and supported us and assisted us in every way they could. That has also transformed to the members of the armed forces as well as the police force who have sacrificed their lives to protect the peace and harmony of our nations. And may all those who have lost their lives in the war be their friend or foe rejoice in the merits that we have acquired today. That has also transformed to us to all those who have lost their lives in the natural calamities such as the tsunamis and earthquakes, landslides and pandemics, including the most recent and prevailing one. Reminding ourselves that among them will be those who have been our friends and family to us in this long journey in sansara, let us take a moment to transfer merits to them. And may, to the power of these merits, if any of them have been born in the woful plains, redeem themselves and be born in the blissful plane, may they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. And finally, let us all resolve that, may, to the power and blessings of all the merits we have acquired throughout the day, we we'll be able to witness the advent of many hundreds of thousands of Arahants on this blessed land and finally, may to the power of all the merits we have acquired today, you and I and everyone who has helped make this program a success become an Arahatan Mahanse, an Mehni Mahanse in this very life and in the era of the Gautama Supreme Buddha itself. Sadhu, Sadhu, Sadhu. Now on that note, we will conclude today's talk. May the blessings of the Noble Triple Gem be with you all forever.